Martin Hill, refugees, punk music, and a drunk goose. Willa Musa Hassan cooks lunch. She and her family are new arrivals at the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. They were caught up in the fighting in Somalia. Too many people have been killed, and so many attacks took place, especially against women and children. There is hunger there and no shelter. We had to run away. We fled Mogadishu with a donkey cart all the way to Bulahubi, where I found a vehicle that was traveling to Kenya. Her story is common in a place where every day more than 200 desperate, frightened people show up at the gate. At least half of Mogadishu's residents have fled the capital and other parts of Somalia in the past several months, mainly because of clashes between Ethiopian troops and Islamist insurgents. Liz Ahuna is a representative of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Kenya. We have placed orders because we basically have run out of what is available now for the new refugees. Of course, we have suspended providing any of these necessities to the old the refugees who were here before 2008, so as to be able to cater for the new uh, refugees arriving. And Ahuna says with overcrowding, services like water have become a huge problem. We're not able to give the refugees all the water that is required even to meet the minimum standards. The Dadaab camps were built to house a total of around 90,000 people. About 224,000 refugees now live here, with more arriving daily. Omar Dadho is with the Kenyan government's Department of Refugee Affairs. The issue of space now is a real challenge to the government because we are required to get goodwill from the host community to be able to secure land to accommodate the refugees. So the goodwill has been expressed in one place and we lack will in other areas. Dadho says local politicians and residents resent the refugees for taking away land, water and other resources from the nearby community. Meanwhile, aid officials continue to seek funds to help the refugees and appeal to Somali leaders to end the fighting so that people can go back to their homes and live in dignity. Kathy Maitney for VOA News, Dadaab. So, Sada, how many years have you lived in Botton Hill? Um, I've lived in 15 years now. You arrived here as an asylum seeker. What was it like moving into your flat in Botton Hill on the first day? How did you feel? At, the, at that time, I was homeless, so I, I didn't care wherever the recommendation I got. I was an absolutely... I was uh, delightful. So when I first came in, it was a bit scary because I didn't know the people, I didn't know uh, my neighbours, I didn't know nobody. But in the next uh, few weeks, I get used to it. I came to Barton Hill Settlement, so I, I loved it. 
And when, when you came here, did you meet other Somali people? Were there many other um, Somalians living in Barton Hill at that time? That time, it wasn't that much as it is now. It's, it's quite few families. Yeah, I met them. Did you find you were able to buy the food that you wanted at the local shops? Was it an easy place for you to establish yourself in Bristol? It was easy for me. The centre is not far from here. Uh, we got the little, we got uh, local shops that um, got halal and everything. So, yeah, it was so easy to live in here. Do you remember the very first British person who you met in Barton Hill who was friendly and welcoming to you? Of course, I do remember that was um, Maggie, Maggie who used to be who used to be a community uh, organizer in here, Barton Hill. When, when I came in, I, I just knocked her uh, uh, office door, and then she spoke to me, she helped me where my uh, recommendation is because I got a letter and I didn't know where I was going the first day I was coming. So she she welcomed me, and then the second time I came to, came back to her, and then she showed me the button he said to me. Tell me what the settlement means to you. It means to me home. I feel like this is my home, so this is it's an unforgettable place. This is where I learn my English, I learn, uh, and I learn my qualification. Also, this is the place that I used to be used a family center, all my children, all my four, four children. So I've been using all that time. And also I work there, I do volunteer there. I do loads of activities in here. It's clearly a really important place for you. That's wonderful. Tell me more about the qualifications that you have, you have gained whilst coming to the settlement. Uh, I got childcare qualification, so I do work to crash. And also I do a frontier for a network. And also I did a couple of courses. Also I was the housing champions ages ago. There's a lot. And the network, that, um, am I right in thinking that's a um, group of people who are trying to encourage other residents in Barton Hill to be involved in things? Is that right? Can you explain to me what that means? Yeah, you 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 got you got it right. Is is uh, the the helps um, give advice and support and uh, groups and then uh, connect uh, people. Like we got a connection. F- uh, Sarah Daly, who works with the network, she uh, connect us now and St. Jude's uh, Women Breakfast Club and us. So we we support them. Uh, for a breakfast club and then uh, we got a lady who runs the group, uh, Helgen, and then she comes for the girls' group session. So yeah, it's, it's loads of connection for the community as well. Tell me about your flat that you live in. How many rooms do you have? Because you have four children. Do you have four bedrooms? No, I don't have a four bedroom. I got two bedrooms. It's overcrowded actually. Yeah, four of my children share one bedroom. And have you asked the council to rehome you? Yes, I'm in a bidding system, but it's, it's, it doesn't work. We, I, we, I bid and there's a people like me, I've got more children than me in a, uh, living in a flat. We do bidding, but it doesn't work.
The area was first mentioned in the Doomsday Book of 1086, when only a few dozen people lived there, surrounded by fields of rhubarb. Barton Hill is the name given to the sloping ground at the southern end of the old royal manor and rural district of Barton Regis, formerly part of Gloucestershire. My name is Reg Bud, Reginald really, but I like to just use the Reg. I was born on the 22nd of May, 1936. Just up the street from where I lived, there was the Barton Hill Baths. And that was where we went on a Saturday to have a bath. And that was looked after by, I can't remember the man's name, but he was very good. He did run the bath for you. And I think there was four or five baths that you had to queue up for. And then uh, when one was vacant, he did run the bath. But they were very big baths, you know. You could have a really nice soap. I don't know if the bath is still open for swimming. I should imagine that where you did take a bath, I would have thought that was closed down quite some time ago. I had two brothers older than me. One was six years older than me. The eldest one was 12 years older than me. So I didn't think this was um, good, really, because I would have rather we were a bit closer together. I can remember going to a nursery school, which was on Queen Anne Road which was the Barton Hill Nursery School. And then when I was seven years old, I went to Avonbell Primary School, which was on Avonbell Road. And then I passed the 11 plus when I was 11. And then I went to St George Grammar School. And do you remember school with affection? How was, how was it? Well, I, I liked school when I was at Avonbell, yeah. At Avonbell, you did take your shilling. And after school, you go over to the Globe and watch an exciting movie, <laughs> which was usually Roy Rogers or somebody like that, and then uh, come home. Because in them days, you could go yeah. as, a, as an eight or nine, ten-year-old, and then usually on a Saturday morning, they did have Saturday morning films as well. That was nice to go there. I think it was something like sixpence. I mean, I can remember years ago, it was nice and sunny and... Uh, in the evenings. These were ranks of houses with front gardens, which were very small, and you had a wall going between you and the house next door, and the ladies and the men did sit out on the walls talking in the sunny evenings, which you don't, I don't think you get now. And the children did play in the road. I think we had a, one car in the road at, when, I was a, when I was very young, yeah. It was Mr. Isaacs. He did move stuff around. He was a haulage contractor, right. brilliant man. He had the house at the, at the top end of um, Holm Street. And when the bombs fell, opposite his house was a bombed shop and a couple of houses next door. And when that was cleared away, he did keep his haulage lorries on that waste ground. And then across Goulter Street from him, there was a Mr. Ball who had eagle coaches. When eagle coaches started, that was where they were, in Goulter Street. And they had a garage there, which was a, quite a big garage, really, and they had petrol pumps, old-fashioned petrol pumps, and they did do evening trips. When they did go on evening trips, which was usually Western, Cheddar, or somewhere like that, he would play the piano, <laughs> my dad. 
When I was about eight or nine, I, I can remember going on these um, evening trips that they did go on. Mm. Yeah. And then most of the people in the road did go, like, you know, it was a yeah. community to go, yeah. The, the bakers where we lived was called Viners, V-I-N-E-R-S, and they had, um, they had a big bakery shop at the top of Golger Street, and on the ration books you, you were only allowed so much bread and so much meat, so much eggs... There was not butter then, but margarine was... Uh, you, you could get margarine and you could get a substitute for egg, which was some compound that you did fry, and it was similar to egg, but it wasn't exactly eggs. I can remember having to, when the siren did go, and there was a siren that went for the alarm for everybody to go into their shelters. And we had a shelter which had to make do with the, for the people next door as well. And they came into our shelter. But usually they didn't, I don't think they bothered or something. So we had a bunk bed in there. In, in your garden? In, yeah, in the garden, yeah. Did everyone have a shelter at that point? No, no, no. So no, your neighbours no, no. was it one every few houses? No, or? it went. It went as close as that. It was sort of one every four or five houses, okay. and it was a brick shelter with concrete roof. I can remember in, in one corner of the shelter you had a small bracket up on the corner of the wall where you did put the candle to light the shelter up. Because I was only five years old, but Trevor, I think he was at the cinema one night, and there was a big bombing raid. And he, he had to get home from the, the Globe Cinema. And anybody that knows Barton Hill will know where the Globe Cinema is. And, yeah, Les was in the home guard. And we had a big three oh three rifle in the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> no, first of all, Les was in the ARP, which was the Air Raid Warden. The office for the Air Raid Warden people was down in Barton Hill Nursery School, in the school. And that was where um, you'd congregate. Then he joined the um, Home Guard and he was given a rifle. I think, first of all, they had long poles like brushes, but they eventually got guns. Yeah, and we used to have this gun in the in the cupboard. And in the street, there was about three men that were in the Home Guard, yeah. At the bottom of the street, we had a, a candle factory that did make candleware. At the back of us, over behind Barton Hill, was a canal called the Feeder Canal. Your canal was built to go from the Avon River at Cumberland Basin to go up underneath Tempermead Station and go all the way up to the Nessum Lot where the actual Avon joined the Avon River again. So it cut off that corner. And why they did that was that we had a big cotton factory that did take cotton from Virginia and places in America. And they came up the canal... And all the women used to work in the cotton factory and uh, all the houses round on the one side of Barton Hill was houses made for people working in the cotton industry. There was a big field uh, that the the young lads used to like to go over and um, play. bit dangerous, really, because you had to climb over a big fence. And there were two big concrete water tanks over there for firefighting. And through the years, it got to be that there was uh, newts, frogs, all in these two huge water tanks. And it was fun for youngsters to go over and uh, make stepping stones and whatnot and catch newts and (laughs) and tadpoles. There was a lot of waste from making uh, cotton 
turning it into reels. And, and the cotton waste was in big mounds in this field. We didn't really come in contact with it because it looks, it didn't look very nice. It was a bit dark in colour, you know, over the years. Nobody ever moved it. And then on the other side of this field, you had a lot, lots of allotments. And if you were lads, you used to go down there and take a few carrots or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but near the fun park was a big firm called Lysitz. And Lysitz did make Churchill tanks. And in the grounds of Lysitz, there were hundreds of these tanks. That was what the Germans wanted to bomb. They wanted to bomb Lysitz. They wanted to bomb the electricity company, which was a bit farther down the river, and the leather factory, which was down the river, towards Bristol. Not intentionally, I don't think, but they hit that candle factory at the bottom of the street where I live, and they hit three houses on the other side of the road from where we were. So when a batch of bombs did come down, you did get quite a few houses around. Bud about life there in the 30s and 40s. Now we're going to skip forward to the 1970s, different time, different generation. And this conversation is about the importance of Barton Hill to Bristol's early punk movement. My name's Johnny Britton. I'm a musician. I played in Orange Juice and the Subway Sect, which were both quite successful. Either of those things would never have happened if it wasn't for the time that I played in Barton Hill Youth Club. And that was the first punk gig there, wasn't it, I think? It was the first night, and it was the first gig I'd ever done with my own band, supporting the Subway Sect, who I eventually played with, and uh, I met their manager, Bernard Rhodes, that night. In retrospect, it's changed my entire life. I probably wouldn't be living where I am or married to who I am or played in either of those bands if it wasn't for that one night. Fantastic. And your band was? The Primates, the yeah. Primates. I always liked the logo of Primark, which was on my bus route to school. So I wanted a name that looked like Primark. And I'd always liked the monkeys as well. So I thought Primates. Brilliant name, I think. Now, the punk gigs at Barton Hill Youth Club, they were all very late, 70... 77. It was after my birthday, which was in April. So it was the summer, I guess, of 77. Right. And it was your band, The Primates, was kind of quite a freewheeling wild trio, really, would it, you say? Before that, I'd been in a school band that did a lot of cover versions, and uh, this was just a lot more wild, and it was just an excuse to jump up and down and pl- be as loud as you possibly could, hopefully annoy anybody that was older than you. Before the, the gigs there <laughs> started... Had you ever actually been to Barton Hill? Well, it's strange because I grew up just about a mile, two miles away probably, in Brislington. And Barton Hill had quite a reputation for being the kind of place that you didn't really want to go. Basically, it was on the bus route to town, so you'd go through it. I think it's fair to say that Barton Hill has always had a bit of a wild reputation. And I think that was part of the appeal of having a punk club there. We'd met shortly before all of this, hadn't we, in a club called Shoots on Park Street... That's right, Generation X. Yeah, Generation X, Billy Idol, what a man. Yeah. Uh, And you were in your band, which I never actually saw on stage, and I was in a band called The Media, which you joined soon after. But 
uh, we also played the media at uh, Barton Hill Youth Club and we supported Susie and the Banshees uh-huh. in one of the later gigs, which was a very vivid affair, shall we say. Interesting times. Uh, yes, indeed. And for a band that now have this colossal reputation at the time, and I think you said this the other day, they were so bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost yeah. like avant-garde. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right, yeah. It was a thing to be bad back then. It wasn't a detriment. That was the joy of punk, really. It was designed for people that had never played before. Sure, absolutely. You know, Other than... Well, both Sex Pistols and The Clash. They knew what they were doing. They certainly did. And Bernard Rhodes, maybe it's worth explaining, was the uh, very influential manager of The Clash. And with along with Malcolm McLaren, those two were like the, the two Svengali influences of that whole scene. But within the case of The Clash, I mean, they were just a class act, wouldn't you say? Well, he kind of, they were quite different to The Sex Pistols, really. The Sex Pistols were quite loose, They'd have big gaps between the songs and they could obviously play in everything, but they were quite casual, you know. Whereas the class were really drilled by Bernard, like an army, really. They had all these rules about what they did, like they had to, they weren't allowed to walk on stage, they had to run on stage already plugged in and start playing straight away and no gaps, you know. The the Sex Pistols bass player uh, always used to say to us, Oh, you know, you should you should smoke and drink on stage and leave longer gaps between the songs, you know. And and then Bernie would say to us, "No." <laughs> yeah. He was quite the drill sergeant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And did you go to many of the gigs down in Barton Hill after the one that you played at the very first? I don't know why, but I, I think I only went to one other one. And uh, you supported, in the media, you supported Susie and the Banshees. Yeah. Well, I definitely saw you playing there. Right. But I don't really remember Susie and the Banshees. But what I really remember about them were the bands that were third on the bill, which were the two I remember, uh, they were both Bristol bands, and they were, uh, the average age was about 14. There was the Gas Taps, which were a kind of Dr. Feelgood-type trio, and then there were the Android Pups. As far as I remember, that all these bands used to wear... Their school uniforms on stage. And I think Adam and the Ants played. I didn't see that one. Nor did I. But they were supposed to be worse than Susie and the Banshees. (laughs) 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 Legend has it that those gigs closed down because of really bad behaviour and violence. Well, there was no alcohol there. There was that one pub just across the road that you could go and have a drink in before you played, which I think the landlord was either uh, Adrian Sherwood's father or Gary Clell's father both of them became big producers yes I think which one Adrian Sherwood ended up producing Madonna she sacked him after he turned up late because he wanted to watch the football (laughs) (laughs) well I mean I don't remember that place as being threatening see this was really as far as like um outside of London went this was really the beginning of punk and it was just little kids there wasn't any real violence Like, all that kind of football kind of crowd thing came along a year later, and the people that started punk weren't really in tune with that. They they kind of... That's when they turned their back on it all, when that kind of thug kind of thing came in. I was born in 1983 and 
originally when I was first born my parents lived in Old Market and then they moved to Barton Hill when I was about 18 months old into a high-rise flats called Barton House lived at number 13 so not too high up so when the lift broke down it wasn't too bad you know carrying all the shopping up with your mum I lived obviously with my mum and my dad and at the time my brother who's two years older than me um, so we spent lots of time playing on the, the balcony of the flats. We had these remote-controlled little cars and scooters that we used to race up and down. The flats were lovely inside, so we had a lovely kitchen, a really nice size, really nice size living room, um, two bedrooms, and a lovely bathroom, which was green. A green bath, <laughs> a green toilet, and a green sink. My parents had lots of friends who also lived in Barton Hill flats. A lot of the friends were almost like family, so we spent lots of time together. And everybody used to congregate on a Friday night. My family, all my mum's friends, Barton Hill Tenants Club, I think it was called. So everyone used to go there on a Friday night and we used to dance and play games and everyone used to just socialise. There was a little snack bar. We used to have our crisps and our lemonade. But everybody you know went. It was like at the end of the school, you were like, are you going to the club tonight? And all your friends would say wherever they were going. You know, you do oops upside your head and you literally had everybody on the dance floor. It was really good times. You know, everyone got on. It was great. And other nights of the week and on a weekend, there was this pub called the Lord Nelson. So at the end of each person's day, they'd go home and have tea and quite often would go to Lord Nelson, where they would all meet each other. The beautiful thing about the Lord Nelson was as you walked in, there was this little square and inside the square was a tuck shop for all the children. For me, I don't I have any bad memories of that time. Barton Hill Flats, then behind it you had Glendale, I think it was Glendale House, and then behind that you had the feeder. I think there was some like houses in the middle and there was a cardboard factory and we used to go down there and every week they used to give us these big sheets of cardboard like which hadn't been made into boxes yet and we used to go across to the the Nethon and there was these grass slopes and we used to just go to the top of the slope and just slide down the slopes on this this cardboard you know and it was obviously safe enough for my parents to let us go out that community in Barton Hill was what held everybody together because no one no one was rich in Barton Hill in those flats no one had lots of money you know it was making the best of what you had and having those social occasions you know and the the tenants club wasn't expensive the local pub wasn't expensive Mm. and there was lots of things back then put on for children so there was another pub just down from Barton Hill school called the rhubarb so they used to do like family barbecues so again, it was very family orientated. Mm. You go and have a, a hot dog for like 50p's. What does Barton Hill mean to me? Growing up, I remember playing football for many clubs in Netham Park. There's also the famous amateur boxing club, which many friends went to. Mercury Prize winning DJ Ronnie Size has a studio in the area. And recently, a Banksy artwork appeared on Marsh Lane for Valentine's Day. Aww. To finish, let's listen to Betty, who lived in Barton Hill for most of her life. She very much reminds me of our nan. Nah, take it away, Betty. The boys were not allowed to play football in the street. Otherwise, the policeman would chase them. I know my brother was playing there one day, and he belted through the through the kitchen, over the back wall of our neighbour in the other street, and the policeman comes running after him, knocked on our door, 
And he said, where's your son? But of course, my brother was missing. And we didn't, I said, I don't know where he is because I wouldn't get him into trouble. Played knocking up ginger, and I've had more than one good item for playing knocking up ginger. <laughs> what happened when you were caught? Well, I had to get a small back, small backside, and so did my brother. I mean, say he was only a year and nine months older than what I was, and I could play with him more than what I did with the girls. Of course, I could get more scrapes then. Then there was another man to come round uh, with flag paper all round his hat, top hat, and he did sing. Um, Catch him alive, catch him alive, those tormenting flies, catch him alive. Well, then we saw the cocker woman come up from Wales. She'd walk along with just his, his basket balanced on her head. And, of course, if we had, Mother had ate me, we had to put a cockles for tea. <laughs> that wasn't very often. And I can remember, my mother was going blind at the time. And uh, I remember, and this is true, all she had was one penny. So she asked me to ask a neighbour to lend her two shillings those days. Well, the miners came up from Wales, they were out on strike a long time, and they came round the street with a band and they were singing and collecting money to help them. So Mother uh, put her hand in the pocket, because she always had an apron on, and instead of putting the penny in, as she thought, she put the two shillings in, not being able to see. So when Father came home, there was no tea for anybody because she couldn't go and borrow another two shillings because she couldn't pay it back. The miners it, it, from South Wales, they walked all the way to Bristol for, to get help because they were stranded. None of them had never had any money. And, of course, the unions wasn't then, that they couldn't get any union money. And, of course, being out on strike, they could not get any door money. So it was bad for them. And it was bad for those in Bristol that had to help them. But I can remember them coming up and walking through the streets with the band and singing. They weren't striking for gain. They were striking for a livelihood, something to help their families. If you didn't have any money, you could not get any help anywhere. We had one man in our street. Uh, he was well known on Barton Hill, and he always kept a goose. A Mr Trinnett, George Trinnett. He was very well known on Barton Hill, and uh, he kept a goose in his backyard. Well, night time, where he got the money from, I don't know. He did go up and have a drink, and he did also buy a drink for the goose. Well, as Mr Trinity wandered down through the street, the goose wandered with him. But um, he had a very nice wife. She was a dear soul, and she wouldn't let anyone oversleep, not to be late for work. She'd sit in a chair, and then when she thought it was time for a certain party to be up, she'd be knocking at their door and telling them. But eventually, he left her and he went down to Lee Woods to live, as there is a lot down there that live in huts and that. And uh, I don't know what happened, but I know that a fellow hit him about the head with a stone and he died. So when the policeman came round inquiring, my mother said, I only said the other day that he'd die with his boots on, and that was true. But I was sorry for his wife because she was a dear soul. Oh, I can remember when we were at school, we were upstairs and the boys were downstairs. We were not allowed to mix. I, I remember once one boy chased me and kissed me, and I, I was so worried. I thought to myself, I wonder if I'm pregnant, as we didn't really know what it was. I remember when I was first menstruating, 
I was frightened to death. I waited for my sister to come home from work because I couldn't tell my mother. So I called my sister up and said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I said, look, what happened? I said, I don't know what it is. And uh, she explained to me then what it was. But I couldn't ask my mother any questions. And to mention babies in front of her, it was terrible. Because they were so old-fashioned in their ways and so set. Even when I was getting married, I was innocent. I didn't really know what was wrong. I, uh, I was frightened to death, I'm going to tell you. But still, never mind. I know that I sometimes have had an inferiority complex about Barton Hill. But it's my home. I've lived here all my life except when we had to move when they put the houses down and I moved farther afield. But I was grateful and thankful to come back to Barton Hill. I was married in St Luke's Church, just across the road. And I feel that Barton Hill was my home from the beginning and I'm thankful that I am back, back on Barton Hill. For this episode, I'd like to thank Mandy and Thomas Bruman and Sam Sayer. This podcast has been brought to you by BCFM, Bristol's first community radio station, in partnership with Bristol 24-7, Bristol Museums, Bristol Archives and the University of the West of England, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Cheers, mate. Bye.